0: You're listening to the Vanu Podcast. The podcast making you invulnerable to the coercion of the state and the servile society. Visit our website for free resources to aid you in your pursuit of self-liberation. Old Vanu publications, podcasts, guest articles, and much more. Go to vanupodcast.com. And now, your hosts, Shane and Jason.
1: And welcome to the Vanu Podcast, the podcast making you invulnerable to the coercion of the state and the servile society. And uh, on this episode and and, uh, in the coming episodes, uh, making you invulnerable to the fascist coercion uh, of big pharma uh, by way of our Health Liberation Self-Liberation Series. Uh, Again, here on the Vanu Podcast, uh, vanupodcast.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you're uh, doing well. But uh, yeah, I just wanted to uh, drop in real quick for a, uh, for a brief introduction to uh, today's episode. Uh, so as I mentioned, my last episode with Daryl Becker, um, I was uh, going, through, uh, going through the archives and uh, was going to re-release uh, an episode that uh, we did with Dr. Stephanie Murphy. Uh, well, that is uh, this episode. Um, this was uh, the episode that we did uh, back on October 27th of 2016. Uh, again, with Dr. Stephanie Murphy uh, and Daryl Becker. Uh, covered a lot of scientific and health related topics, uh, and I figured it was uh, yeah, worthy of inclusion in this series. So, uh, some things we discuss uh, Stephanie goes over her background, uh, her transition from a uh, PhD to professional voice actress. Uh, Medical language complicated by design, Um, the patronizing of patients by doctors that uh, consisted of uh, a very, very good start to the discussion, Uh, very good start to the discussion that I kind of forgot about. Um, We talked about uh, both the state and pharma quacks. Uh, They label disobeyers as noncompliant. The former, uh, the state tosses you in a cage. Um, The second fires you as a patient um, if you uh, are noncompliant. Uh, Daryl and his colleagues experience uh, that most of what is learned in medical school is clinically and practically useless or even counterproductive. Uh, There's no such thing as idiopathic uh, unknown in holistic medicine. Uh, There's always causal vectors. Um, That was, uh, um, I guess, a point that Daryl discussed. Very, very good point. Um, The crazy history of medicine. Uh, Allopathic medicine uses the state to force out its holistic competition. Barbaric treatments like mercury, uh, etc., Studies proving uh, substances are unsafe and toxic, uh, covered up uh, the conflict of interest written scam of a food pyramid. Um, my story, being a uh, good, obedient slave to big pharma growing up, um, health improves uh, as people disregard medical authorities. Uh, and that's just my my overall summation of... Rambling on for me rambling on in the episode for like five minutes, I think. But anyway, uh, tips from Daryl on doing, on thinking about medical research. Uh, Humility is important. Uh, An overview of disciplined minds by Jeff Schmidt, uh, who's uh, a PhD. Um, How the survival society indoctrinates and controls professionals. Uh, Doctors don't understand the danger of the treatments they prescribe and give. A discussion on the placebo and nocebo effect. Uh, The former uh, is a benefit from a fake drug. The latter is a perceived side effect uh, of a supposedly innocuous treatment. So... Uh, that was uh, yeah another interesting, interesting little uh, side conversation that I kind of forgot about. Not really substantial, I don't think, but um, I think it did kind of show, um, at least uh, gave, a look, gave some more insight into the way that ter- Daryl views medicine and health. So um, I appreciated it. Um, next, the obsession with certainty, uh, when in reality, the truth comes from curiosity and asking questions. Um, Daryl discusses uh, the entrenched beliefs across all industries. Uh, Stephanie and uh, Daryl then both discussed their, uh, you know, reflections and experiences with medical school. Um, they both comment on, uh, you know, they, they saw a lot of divorce, a lot of burnout, um, destroyed relationships, etc. Um, Stephanie commented that uh disciplined mind seemed to resonate with her, seemed because she hadn't read the book, had, hadn't read the book um, at that time. Then we uh, concluded with, uh, I guess, a discussion on scientific consensus uh, definitions, a brief explanation, and uh, basically that it's a big hurdle to scientific truths. Um, Stephanie provides some of her thoughts on vaccines, uh, again, that are not medical, medical advice. Um, and, uh, I guess to kind of, uh, to conclude, to conclude this uh, longer episode, it was, it was a couple hours almost. We concluded by, uh, I guess the, the concluding point that I kind of got from it was be wary of these massive PR machines. Uh, the incentives are for making money and controlling perception, not in your health or well being. And I thought that was a very pertinent point that people would have been, you know, very, uh, you know, those in the survival society would have been, uh, yeah, well well to uh, to behoove at that time. But uh, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Um, lastly, make sure to go check out the website for Pasnia, the Free Republic of Pasnia, the Self Liberator's Paradise, Pasnia.com. Uh, my incredibly talented graphic graphic designer, Miriam Zachariah, put together a promo promo image of the Pasnia passport, uh, silver slash gold coins, and the upgraded flag design. Uh, again, the website is Pasnia.com, and please sign up for email updates while you're there. Um, big things, big things are in store for Pasnia and uh, for this series as well. Uh, So with that said, uh, until next time, always remember, Bonu is yours for the making. So on September 22nd, we had uh, Daryl Becker on to discuss the notion of scientific consensus, the veracity of scientific research today, uh, the implications stemming from those, uh, among other things. If you're listening live and haven't caught the broadcast yet, uh, caught that broadcast yet, there's no reason to disconnect. Uh, Just keep in mind that we may pass over something without going completely in depth uh, if we already did so. Uh, We do value your your time, uh, after all. Uh, that said, it was such a terrific conversation. We got a lot of good feedback, uh, so we decided to have a uh, part two. Uh, for those listening live, here's a brief synopsis of uh, of, of that broadcast. Uh, we concluded that scientific consensus is unscientific because science does not require a consensus. We concluded that a significant amount of published scientific research is unreliable and sometimes outright fallacious. Uh, that is due t- mainly to the incentive that uh, academic journals have in publishing new discoveries. Uh, publication bias, and the lack of incentives they, that, that they have in publishing retractions uh, or corrections. Uh, the issue of vested interests uh, also comes into play as well. Uh, the only difference between that broadcast and tonight is that Dr. Stephanie Murphy will be joining Daryl and I to provide uh, her thoughts and experiences uh, on the subject. Uh, and man, is it, is it a pleasure to have her back uh, on the show. So without further ado, uh, Dr. Murphy, are you, are you back? Uh, are you with us?
2: Hey Shane. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that won't be the only difference between the shows.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, well, uh, we'll, well, well, one of them. Yeah, I guess the, we'll talk the, about some new stuff too. <laughs> <laughs> right on, right on. That's 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 definitely good to hear. Uh, well, welcome back to LePander Attack Radio. How, how are you doing this evening? Thank you. Yeah, oh, good. Thanks for having me back on. Not a problem. Not a problem. Now I know when we had you on on the show over a year ago, you told me that you prefer Stephanie, so I'll I'll call you that from now on. But the title is is just pretty it's pretty relevant to what what we'll be uh, discussing this evening. So uh, why don't you go ahead and uh, let the listeners know uh, who you are and uh, and what you do?
2: Yeah, uh, thanks. I do prefer Stephanie, and I'm sure we'll get into talking about why. But basically, um, I am a voice actor, and you may have heard my voice on audiobooks or various little video voiceovers. That's what I do now, but it's not what I always did. I used to actually be part of an MD-PhD program. I was trying to become a physician scientist so that I could not only you know work with patients who had diseases and things wrong with them, but also find and create new cures and discover them. So I got a, a PhD in biochemistry in 2013 was when I finished that. And I also went to about half of the, um, the medical school training in the U.S. here. Um, but then I, I made a career change. I had been starting to realize over the time that I was in school that, I wasn't really happy and it wasn't <laughs> kind of what I expected it to be. The workload was like completely overwhelming and it was, I had a lot of frustrations, which I'm sure we'll get into in the show. Um, so I completely switched gears. Um, I had a podcast as a hobby at the time and I sort of gradually came to realize that the podcast was bringing me more joy and fun than uh, the work that I was doing as my sort of day job and <laughs> main, main gig. And I said, well, what am I doing here? I, I think I need to sort of reevaluate. And um, it was really scary and I was uncertain how it would go. But looking back, I made that career change about three and a half years ago and I'm super glad I did. And now I'm having so much fun as a voice actor um, <laughs> working from home. I still do uh, a little bit of stuff that relates to my previous background. I write um, I, I co-write an, a quarterly newsletter for Sun's Research Foundation, which is a human life Extension Research Foundation with my friend Max Pito. and um, I narrate a lot of medical and uh, scientific material as part of my work as a voice actor. Oh, nice. so, um, yeah, I guess I guess that's the <laughs> the short version of the of the backstory. I don't know if where people are listening from, your audience is, is probably like pretty diverse. So if they, you know, they may know me from sort of the Liberty circles or whatever. I do have a podcast. It's called Sex and Science Hour. If you want to check that out, it's, it's at sexandsciencehour.com. And I sort of combine my passion for podcasting with uh, you know, some scientific stuff and and mostly just fun (laughs) yeah Yeah. i have a passion for fun too
1: (laughs) (laughs) very good very good and uh uh and uh daryl welcome back to uh, liberty under attack radio as well uh again it's always a pleasure to have you on have you on the show as well um so so same as with uh stephanie for for those who who don't know yet we've had you on the show a few times they probably do but uh for the new for the new folks uh, i want you to tell the listeners a little about
2: yourself and uh and what you do
0: right on thanks shane and oh man it's so awesome to finally do a show with you stephanie
2: You too, Daryl. This is going to be fun. I've been looking forward to this all week.
0: Right on. So yeah, I am Daryl Becker. I am an acupuncturist, holistic healthcare provider living on the Big Island of Hawaii. And that's how I make my general amounts of money that way. And I've been a guest on a variety of podcasts. I've pretty much been a professional podcast for the past four years now. And that's another thing that I tend to do and keep doing Getting ready to launch my own productions at some time in the near future, but still like a, a work in progress like that, and I often um, brought on shows to cover issues of pro- methods of communication, methods of cognition and thinking, methods of dealing with essentially intellectual and emotional issues, and how to connect inside and between people, making it easier, basically reducing friction, so it's something I cover a lot, I do that one, I have some inkling of these 18 years of working in healthcare. So I have some, uh, do a few shows on that topic. I'm hoping to increase more of that in the future. And that's like the quick Daryl Becker summary for today.
1: Very good. Very good. And you also, uh, you also, uh, uh, are very knowledgeable on the trivia method, which we had you on to discuss, uh, as part of the direct action series, uh, you're, you're on there too. Uh, and we've had, we've had you on, oh yeah, probably, I don't know, three or four times now, but, uh, Ah, uh, yeah, very, very knowledgeable in the trivia. That was, that was one of the, uh, my favorite uh, broadcasts,
2: uh, in, intellectually. But, uh, uh let's, let's- You know, Daryl, when you said um, you like to decrease friction, I, th- I thought, oh, he's the. You're- if you had a job title, it could be like the great lubricator or something.
0: Yeah, yeah. Thanks, <laughs> Stephanie. I'm, I'm aiming to lube up people's minds and hearts if I can, or you know, oh, I love give, give greater skills. You know.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> very good very good uh so so i guess let, let's just start with uh i guess i guess before that uh, daryl uh, was my synopsis i know it was, it was really brief and really quick but uh is there anything you want to uh to add to that uh, before we before we dive into i guess uh, stephanie's thoughts on that broadcast
0: no i think we pretty much covered it i mean i certainly would wish to add that me and brett for on the school sucks podcast we covered this with four shows and that you know substantial amount of time and I think if anyone knows the School Sucks podcast, you know that that involves like a whole lot of editing, like some serious effort of research and anything like oh, yeah. that. So, yeah, I'd recommend people to go over schoolsucksproject.com and check those out.
1: Yeah, and that and that's actually what kind of sparked Maya. because I, I wanted to
0: discuss the subject for for a while because it, it's it's an interesting
1: one. I don't think it's discussed enough. Uh, so yeah, I kind of did get the motivation from that one, and I, I knew there were there there are like a thousand different directions to go with this. So uh, we we won't have to reinvent the wheel uh, at, at all here. So uh, so uh, you did have a chance to check out uh, uh, the show that we did on the sept- on September twenty second, Stephanie. Uh, mm-hmm. Is there anything uh, from that you'd like to bring notice to immediately? Uh, you know, points of agreement, disagreement. Uh, Something you want to extrapolate on or anything like that
2: um well I guess the the thing that stood out to me was I liked how you talked a little bit more about um one bias that often gets ignored is like what is seen and what is unseen, almost like Frederick Bastiat and the law, you know, he had the seen and the unseen, like the broken window fallacy. Um, Mm -hmm. In science, it's like that too, um, because negative data doesn't get seen because it never gets published because of the way the incentives are set up in that system. And so I I really liked, you know, taking some time to explain how that occurs and uh, to help people think about, you know, what they might not be seeing (laughs) out there (laughs) that could be important data for impacting their health
1: yeah yeah and th- that is a good point I, I think it was uh in, in the in the final video we played what doctors don't know about uh about uh, the medicine they prescribe uh the, this the, the the studies that didn't get published i think you was talked like there was a drug in the 1980s that was for uh i don't know heart, heart arrhythmia attack. yeah heart, ar- heart arrhythmia I, I thought that was a word but i thought i'd mispronounce it so i wasn't gonna i wasn't gonna uh, <laughs> wasn't gonna say it um but uh, you know
2: oh well that's another point Shane. like um I think Daryl was saying in that podcast something about, uh, how in, in his profession in Chinese, traditional Chinese medicine, you can go on the internet, look it up. And if you wanted to, you could learn it or you could basically work with a practitioner and they would teach you some of the, what they know in addition to helping treat you. Mm -hmm. Um, with tradition, with Western medicine, it is not like that. I think a lot of the like Latin words and a lot of the names for things were purposely intended so that doctors could have a language that they could talk to each other in, but that most people wouldn't understand, including their patients. And that's the thing that I think a lot of people don't like, or it's one of the gripes that I hear pretty often about Western medicine is like, oh, you know, I feel like my my doctor's condescending to me and talking down to me and patronizing. And, you know, to be fair, like there are some people out there who really do want their doctor to take this paternalistic approach and sort of tell them what to do. And, but not everybody's like that. I certainly don't want that type of doctor. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, so, no, yeah, definitely not. Definitely not. And, and, and I did see that difference. I mean, I, I'm a type one diabetic, so I have to go to an endocr- i endocrino- I have to go to an endocr- endocrinologist to get my prescriptions mm-hmm. for insulin. And I, I I guess up until like uh, last year, I went to a, an, a, uh, I guess uh, a holistic doctor in Chicago. And I was actually like uh, I I never have any con- like any in depth conversations with my endocrinologist. Uh, but when I was up with my holistic doctor, like I don't know, ten or fifteen minute visits would turn into an hour because he would actually kind of treat me as an equal. Uh, which was which was really nice. Uh, but but anytime I'd go and even when I brought up just something s- smaller, significant, it's uh, like, no, that's not true. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think you're, you're you're definitely correct about that. Um, yeah. But, and yeah.
2: in some ways it is like it's almost like a performance. You know, I look at things now like because I'm an actor, I, I think about acting a lot and performing. (laughs) And I think about performance as it applies to a lot of things, like a lot of roles that we play in our lives. Gender roles, for example, that's a whole different topic. But I think when you go to a doctor and they are in this role where they're wearing the white coat And they're supposed to have the power to tell you what to do with your health so that and they have this knowledge, that specialized knowledge that you don't have and you're sort of paying them or, you know, wanting to get their advice and you have to make an appointment with them and they're very busy and they're seeing a patient every 15 minutes. So you're not that important, but they are. It really sets up this power dynamic. And I think just like the Stanford Prison Experiment, I'm not comparing doctors to prison guards but they get into a role in the stanford prison experiment it showed that if you put people into roles and you give them a uniform and you give them a title they start performing those roles and when you're a doctor in the west western medicine kind of system i i do think they sort of start falling into that role too of the authority figure of the figure that's going to tell you what to do like the benevolent uh The benevolent uh, ruler or something like that, they're going to tell you what to do because they know best and it's for your own good. And as people who are interested in liberty, that's something that I think is inherently kind of we're we're cautious of (laughs) and maybe a little frightening to us. So I can certainly see why a lot of libertarians dislike doctors, (laughs) you know what I mean? Yeah. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah 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 definitely definitely and I mean it just kind of comes uh I, I mean you you always kind of see I mean I see it on TV shows when I, when I rarely watch but uh like the the patient goes into their their normal their normal doctor and, and they're like, well you know uh um, this is what what we're gonna prescribe you with well and and then the patient says, well you know I, I looked I, I did some research on the internet and I found that this was actually uh this actually could be and obviously you've got to be careful when you're doing internet research but there's there's a there's a good way to do it uh and the patient says that to the doctor and you're like well no th- there's the study On this are a lot more effective, Uh, and it it seems kind of uh, uh, I don't know disparaging uh, to me. Some uh, with the reaction, some doctors actually provide. uh, Oh, so many uh, people feel.
2: Yeah, so many people say that they feel like their doctors are not listening to them, and in fact, Shane, you know what it's called? I'm sure Daryl knows this too. But what do you do? You know what it's called when um, a doctor prescribes a medicine to a patient and the patient doesn't take the medicine. It's called the patient compliance. Yep, non-compliance. <laughs> the patient is being non-compliant. It doesn't matter if they didn't take the medication because it, they tried it and it made them sick. It had some side effects. It they didn't take it because they never filled the prescription because it was too expensive and they couldn't afford it. If they if they tried it and then they just forgot, it doesn't re- matter why. They're labeled as non-compliant, and then again, it sets up this adversarial kind of dynamic between the doctor and the patient. And I don't know, I. I would much rather, like Daryl is so kind of fond of creating these kinds of relationships in his work, you know, I would much rather have an, an a relationship with my physician or healthcare provider that's based on equality, that's based on mutual respect, that's not like a top down, you know, very power dynamic, heavy kind of relationship. I'd like it to be a little bit more balanced. <laughs> and I think that's that's, you know, how I would feel that my health and well being were being most uh most valued and respected, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Daryl, any, anything you want to add?
0: No, I don't have nothing to say. No, of course <laughs> <laughs> I've got a page of notes from what you're saying, so i want to riff off some of that. Um, first off, yeah. just to go back to Oriental Medical field of studies and everything like that, technically, yes, all the information is out there. And in case, just to dispel that the idea of like, as if it doesn't have jargon, it is filled with jargon. I mean it is an a to z huge volume of words that you learn just to become an oriental medical professional that's it there's like a huge number but not only that you also there's there's an obligation to pass your board exams to learn pretty much the standard everything including the basic latin greek roots of breaking down western medical terms so mm-hmm. it's both it includes both And there would certainly be a performance art going on that many people will engage in in their personal clinics as an acupuncturist, as a health care provider. You're basically putting on a performance in that way, too, because Mm -hmm. people are going to look for confidence. They're going to look to be inspired that you're going to be effective. And certainly if you're in the cash field like I am, I I completely get cash from my work. So if I do not provide effectiveness, at least some type of correlation equals causation, at least in someone's mind, I do not have repeat customers coming back. I need mm. to demonstrate correlation of, of things moving and happening and benefits happening. And so far in, in these 18 years, at, to getting to the point where I often am working my way out of business, Like meaning the person gets better. The, the, the injury is better, that's easy. Or the chronic illness gets better and they do not see an incentive to come back and keep paying money. So there's that. There certainly is the power dynamic. And I certainly, when I talk with other of my colleagues, it's not like people holding my same license are immune to that. That many of them will pull the power trip on their clients. And I know colleagues who literally will fire their clients if they're being non compliant. Oh, wow. I, I I know people in that field. It's really just become another part of the, the mega juggernaut of, uh, what can I say, a very controlled hangout. And luckily, you know, in what's called alternative medicine, which is really just more like I would say more more effective medicine, <laughs> you know, that's what I'm going to call it, and um it, it just includes a wide spectrum of professional licenses and, and methodologies, all of which technically can be learned and the medicines and tools can be acquired. You know, technically you can do that, but would you actually take the time to do so? And the answer usually is no. You most people wouldn't have the time to do that. I mean, people are busy with their lives and it's so outsourcing kind of like, you know, it
2: as a shortcut.
0: Yeah, of course. Why why you know and and Yeah, makes sense. There's um there's a push down uh or a push against the apprenticeship program that has been nearly destroyed across the United States and other countries are following suit on that. So the only ways to actually acquire the legal ability to do what I do is to go through what is mostly like highly superfluous, unnecessary quantities of information just to get to your license. Like huge portions all of my colleagues, you know, they just know that huge portions of what they got, fascinating, interesting, not clinically relevant to their personal practice. And, and rather quickly forgotten from as the years move on, you, you, you gather what is useful and you push aside all these other things that were just there to sort of weed out people. That's what the accreditation and the consolidated industrialized college process of medical training is about. It's about essentially like netting money and weeding out people who don't have the clever ability to memorize and spit back things out like a, a, a an automaton, basically. And um, you know, you mentioned uh, the the term noncompliance, and I was thinking of the fancy doctor word for I don't know, which is idiopathic. <laughs>
2: idiopathic, yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's like I don't know. You know, it's like oh, fibromyalgia, idiopathic. Oh, you're saying you don't know? Because in my field we very well have a whole bunch of ways to look at finding causal vectors. You know, like in my training, there's no such thing as idiopathic. Everything is, let's find the actual things that are measurable and correlate them to what's going on and understand that each individual is completely individual and has their specific causal vectors to cause their situations. And whenever you come upon a... a, basically a so-called disease name that the you know your client comes to you and they say, I've got fibromyalgia, and you look it up and it says idiopathic, generally what you find out is that that condition is being falsely labeled because they're just labeling a symptom. They just called, they used a symptom word and they called it, and, and they gave it a name you know, using Greek and Latin roots and made the claim that it's not, you know, so far they don't have the power to understand the causal vectors for it.
2: That is yeah looking. that is a huge complaint that a lot of people have about western medicine is that it it addresses the symptoms and for every symptom there's some kind of a pill that you can take right mm-hmm. to to get to put a bandaid over that symptom but it doesn't address the underlying causes and yeah. i think that's a valid critique of western medicine it's not very good at treating chronic conditions and those are actually the majority of what people struggle with especially in the western world in the us you know people die from Diabetes, heart, heart disease, um, you know, stroke and all that kind of stuff when they're older. So, um, yeah, that is a a complaint. And you said, um, alternative medicine or traditional, um, oriental medicine is more effective, Daryl. I would say it depends on what it's, what you're talking about treating, right? Like maybe, maybe if you break your arm or if you're in a car accident, you want to go to like an ER with a trauma center, but, you know if you have a chronic condition if you're suffering with like allergies diabetes fibromyalgia like you mentioned you know maybe an alternative method would be more suited to help you um, or
0: effective method because again I, I, can, it, I can it's I can, just about ahead, effectiveness girl. right i mean right that's and all even we're calling
2: about. it alternative too is framing it you know what i mean i yeah. i fully agree with that like in the in the early you know in the early part like in the history of america Nobody, first of all, had a clue what they were doing with medicine, but (laughs) there were lots of different schools of thought within medicine. There were the doctors who became allopathic or Western medicine eventually because they used the state to regulate their competition out of existence. There was a a group of doctors who thought, oh, well, the best way to treat people is to give them mercury and put put burning poultices on their wounds and and stuff like that. And these kind of barbaric, horrible treatment methods that often if they worked, it was if the patient got better, it was in spite of the treatment, not because of the treatment. Um, So there was that. And then there was like, you know, the beginnings of like homeopathy and hydro, hydropathy, where people would go and like sit in the water and sit in a hot tub, and maybe it made them better sometimes because <laughs> they were needed to relax. And then there was, you know, uh, Graham and Kellogg who thought that eating a lot of wheat fiber would like make people more morally pure and we should circumcise people. And so there's all this crazy history of medicine, but what happened in the early 1900s was the allopathic physicians got together and they basically used the state, they created these state boards of medicine and you had to be board certified and they would regulate the number of medical schools, the type of medical schools, what they could teach, the curriculum. And, and how many people could be admitted? And so they are in that way, they artificially restricted the supply of doctors and you had to have like a recommendation letter from an existing allopathic doctor to even get into the medical schools. So the number of healthcare providers dropped. Their salaries went up because they're in demand. And in some ways we, we have like a lot of vestiges of that system and other methods of medicine were classified as alternative or not mainstream. These are the you know, these are the fringe um, ideas in medicine, when really, you know, it wasn't that fringe because at that time, nobody had a clue what they were doing with medicine, right? And there's still a lot of that going on, like acupuncture and all these other methods that are classified as alternative medicine are, are kind of marginalized, even with the name that's given to them. Somewhat, yeah.
0: And what you mentioned is, of course, regulatory capture. Mm-hmm. That's what essentially monopolies love to do, yep. and the next thing, of course, is rent-seeking behavior. That's where they essentially strip away any permission slip and then sell it back to you. Yeah, you know, that, that's that type right. of thing. And with those two, you know, you can only have those two with monopolies. And here's what I would probably make the claim: as this was being sewn up, all of education, as you know, you see the the work of Brett over at School Sucks, you know, shows. All of every type of education, and one subset being medicine education, was essentially being gobbled up by these monopolies. And what I would be making the claim would be that, or how would this? I make the the heavy speculation that I probably would bet money on if I had to, that there's been serious malfeasance and fraud to just really put out there a false version of a variety of scientific facts across a variety of scientific Uh, endeavors, uh, scientific fields of study, and medicine is just one of them. So like what I've well seen, yeah if you and if you know, you're
2: questioning that just look at the recent news that came out about um, how the sugar industry essentially bought off some researchers from Harvard back in the 1950s to who had evidence in a meta review a study about a bunch of different studies that showed that sugar was there was a link between sugar and heart disease and they suppressed that evidence because of a small a relatively small payoff in today's yeah. dollars of like fifty thousand bucks from the the sugar industry and it was still going on there were sh- there were um uh, candy companies that were paying researchers or funding research that showed that there was no connection between candy consumption and child obesity and that was still going on relatively recently and these harvard researchers that got um, paid off by the sugar industry ended up, one of them be- ended up working in the U.S. Department of Agriculture and was very instrumental <laughs> in creating the food pyramid, which, you know, was the big fat lie that we were all told in the nineties that, oh, if you just eat these low fat cookies that are full of sugar, you can eat as many as you want because fat makes you fat and sugar doesn't. <laughs> and yeah. we ended up with more people who have type two diabetes and struggle with obesity and weight gain than ever. So, so obviously, that was, um, you know, there's some contrary evidence for you there. Uh, sorry, Daryl, I didn't mean to um, cut you off. If you have more to say about that, go for it. I just wanted but, to bring uh, that we, up because it was we so are. blatant.
1: Uh, no coast tonight but i do have uh, two very very special guests with me uh daryl becker from voluntary visions and uh Steph- and dr stephanie murphy last time i'll say it, I, pr- I promise uh <laughs> and and uh stephanie murphy from the sex and science hour uh, podcast definitely go check out all of their work uh truly truly a uh, uh, great uh, great podcast great content uh, but welcome back, guys. It's uh, definitely great to have you on. Uh, I wanted to say before, before, uh, uh you mentioned something in chat that I think is, is interesting, Daryl, but I wanted to just speak from, from my experience. Uh, and Daryl, I mentioned this in the first show, but just for Stephanie's benefit. Um, so, so, uh, throughout my childhood, I was always sick. I had ear infections pretty much every month of my life uh for what well, when i was uh, an infant uh then i would yeah and, and i was yeah i was sick all the time with oh, ear infections those are the
2: worst they hurt so bad
1: yeah yeah uh, you should see my medical file it's 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 un- it's uh, unbelievably mm. thick but i had ear infections pretty much uh, uh throughout growing up uh then when I got into high school I had uh um, pneumonia every single year for like 5 years got type 1 diabetes at age 16 at age 18 I be- I was an epileptic I was an epileptic for uh for about a year had a grand mal seizure at a metal show which was scary but uh yeah I was unconscious like oh My god for, like, that's two so days. metal <laughs> I I know I know but now looking back on it now that I survived it is kind of a it's a pretty metal story but uh, yeah
2: that is <laughs>
1: but uh, I'm but, glad but,
2: you're okay Shane
1: <laughs> yeah me, me too me too um but uh, uh, so I had all these health issues and and I mean I, I did everything the doctors always said I uh, I got all I got all of my vaccines I uh, took all the antibiotics which turns out they gave me intestinal candidias which is not a good thing to have. Uh, but which is was something that my homeopathic doctor in Chicago diagnosed, but I had all these health issues and I was sick, of sick a lot. And uh, when I started, I guess, making some changes in my life thinking, you know, this is screwed up, like I, I'm doing everything they say, they're supposed to help me, but uh, I'm still in this position where, uh, I mean, my, my health is not good.
2: And so wrong, I, yeah.
1: Yeah, so I I started making some changes. I mean, I didn't know what to, I didn't know what to do at that at that time. I wasn't uh, I wasn't as good of a researcher as I was now. I started eating. I, I was just looking for a solution, so I started eating organic, and uh, got into some 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 natural stuff. Started taking vitamins and, and supplements, and I went to the homeopathic doctor in Chicago, and uh, um, in about uh, six months six months or a year, my A one C uh, dropped it, it dropped significantly, which is just the, the control of my blood sugar, and. It was it was yeah it was it was really fascinating too because the level I'm at now I should be having a lot of low blood sugars but I'm not um, I don't uh, he obviously diagnosed a lot of uh, or he obviously uh, I guess not not really prescribed there's some that were prescriptions but a lot of them were just over the counter but uh, a lot of vitamins and supplements some to help with uh, uh, blood sugar control and then even some um, like uh, um, there's there's a couple of uh, natural medicines. That's, uh, I guess the claim is that they, they regenerate beta cells and uh, I actually trusted I actually trusted this doctor and I, I, I knew I was familiar with a lot of the stuff that he was he was telling me and I researched more of it uh, as I got home but my, my health increased significantly my blood sugar is more under control and I think I, I might have been sick like once in the past three years and it was just like a cold that lasted like three days and I was fine after that um, so my, my experience with, Uh, Like, I guess I I don't know what to call it. I'll just call it natural natural medicine uh, versus uh, versus the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, The results are just so different. It's it's not even it's not even funny. And obviously, I don't know exactly what variables played into that. But uh, I do know that uh, I'm a lot healthier now for, for whatever that's worth.
2: Well, glad to hear you're you're feeling better and feeling healthier. There's really like nothing more valuable than our health, and um, it just shows what a huge difference lifestyle and just awareness and consciousness of how everything we do, um, everything we think, everything we eat and put in our bodies, and uh, the thing how we feel and what we say and do and think. All that affects our health. It's it's really all connected. I don't mean to sound too woo-woo, but it really is. <laughs> There's yeah. such a strong connection there. So good yeah, for you, Shane. Mysterious.
0: Yeah. And seriously, yeah, it's a good thing you're young. <laughs> That's what I'll say. Yeah. Both of yeah. you. Um, <laughs> probably, probably easier to
1: probably easier to make these corrections now than than later on in life. But uh, but Daryl, you mentioned something interesting in chat. I'm not going to try to. Uh, I'm not going to. I'm not going to try. I'm not going to try. But uh, just go go ahead with, with, with the thought that you put in chat.
0: Sure. What I was going to mention was that there sometimes is too often an attitude assessment that does not go on inside people, which is are you in an either or perspective? Like it's either you're fully trusting. Your orthodox MD practitioner and the research that they give you, or things that are going through the publications that you've grown to trust based upon you, or you trust a hundred percent only the holistic things. I only I go to Natural News for my own news sources. I go to Mercola.com and that kind of thing, That's or you know Gary There's there's a lot of interesting sources and. It's one or the other. It's kind of p- bipolar in some ways. Um, what I like to do as an and also. I I like to do, like I like effective medicine. So there are pathogen problems here in the tropics uh, that are profound. And when they get ingrained in someone, like uh, very rarely I see a person and it's gone too far. I don't have the. Literally, I just don't have the natural supplements that are going to get them from where they are to where they need to be. And they already make things like Keflax and uh, amoxicillin and things of that nature, or the other, you know, even, you know, more, I would say, highly toxic antibiotics and highly toxic antiparasite meds. And th- for short term, those highly toxic or even just like the standard amoxicillin or Keflax kind of thing is just going to serve great, you know, for like, you know, two, three days, bam, it's like taken care of it. And that's what I love about effective medicine is you're putting it all together and you're looking for literally what is effective. There are ways to research things. And if you can get out of uh, the polarity of either or and into the flexibility of and also, and going into doing that with your research too. So I don't like have to either be a PhD research scientist of a certain number of decades who's gone into that and done uh, have this type of accolades from these sources, or I'm just Daryl Becker and I've been through this type of schooling and therefore can be dismissed that way. It's more like you're looking for what is like integrating things together as an effective solution. That's what I've learned is that being, uh, being flexible is really, really key. Also, having humility, knowing I could get it wrong. Also, having curiosity. I've got more to learn. So I look for those kinds of things. I wanted to put that in there.
2: Yeah, definitely. I agree with you, Daryl. And it reminds me of the cognitive um, bias or, or the fallacy of black and white thinking, you know, it's either this or that. People are either completely good or they're completely bad. You know, like obviously that's not an accurate representation of reality. There's, there's shades in between. And right. And it doesn't have to be either a hundred percent, um, this way of thinking or a hundred percent that way of thinking. There's room for both and there's room for different perspectives in there. Um, and, and also like, you know, reality doesn't lie, right? So you can get re- re- results when it comes to treating diseases and healing from things that are wrong with your body um, many different ways. You know, you might get one type of results more often uh, with Western medicine and a diff- different type um, with so-called alternative medicine, right? Like we talked about the chronic versus the acute kind of diseases and each has its strengths in, in either one. Um but yeah there's really room for like a lot in there <laughs> and i like it. i like the open mindedness i like the humility that was something that really struck me from your previous conversation guys was like you talked about how a lot of these people who, who become authority figures in sort of academia, they do lose their humility. You know, they think that they are the ultimate authority on everything. And, um, they've, wor- they do work really hard to get where they are at. But in the process, they go through, you know, some, some things that are kind of like hazing rituals. And sometimes when you go through stuff like that, you think, well, I've earned the right to be a little bit <laughs> to embrace this role of authority figure. And, you know, that, that whole system is just, is sort of just the domination system where there's people that have power over others and then you rise up through the ranks of power, but you start at the bottom. And I don't know, those, those systems in general, I think, um, <laughs> we can say we'd like to take the power dynamics out of, out of our, all of our relationships as much as possible if we're going to call ourselves voluntarious, right?
1: Mm-hmm. yeah yeah definitely definitely and and that that was like that that's a perfect segue this is another thing i this is another another thing we're going to discuss on the outline something we covered uh something that we covered in, in in part 1 uh which is uh disciplined minds uh by by jeff schmidt uh stephanie have you have you had a chance to uh check out that book no no Okay, yeah, I have, I haven't either. It's on my reading list, which is getting really, really like I've probably got enough to last me my entire life yeah. at this point. But uh, uh, but but Daryl, can you provide just a brief synopsis of that book? It should be yeah. What what you just explained, Stephanie, was is perfect with perfectly in line with with, with what, uh, what 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 uh, Mr. Schmidt discussed. But yeah, Daryl, go ahead.
0: Well, Disciplined Minds: A Critical Look at Salaried Professionals and the Soul Battering System That Shapes Their Lives. That's the subtitle, and it's by Jeff Schmidt, who is a PhD, and. He basically send, spends time discussing and describing and investigating exactly how shattering that process is for many professionals. Who mm. and and I think uh, basically what he describes in that book, Stephanie, you got to see firsthand in the beginning parts of your med training and certainly all the way through the PhD process. You you pretty yeah. much got to understand and, and see that. So I have like a little like a synopsis I can read here. This yeah. book is stolen, written in part. Or s- written in part on stolen time—that is, because, like millions of others who work for a living, I was given most of my prime time. I was giving most of my prime time to my employer. So begins <laughs> Jeff Schmidt in this riveting book about the world of professional work. Schmidt demonstrates that the workplace is a battleground for the very identity of the individual, as is graduate school, where professionals are trained. He shows that professional work is inherently political and that professionals are hired to maintain strict ideological discipline. The hidden root of much career dissatisfaction, argues Schmidt, is the professional's lack of control over the political component of his or her creative work. Many professionals set out to make a contribution to society and add meaning to their lives. Yet our system of professional education and employment abusively inculcates an acceptance of politically subordinate roles in which professionals typically do not make a significant difference, undermining the creative potential of individuals organizations, and even democracy. Now, this guy is obviously coming from that perspective. Schmidt details the battle one must fight to be an independent thinker, showing how an honest reassessment of what it means to be a professional in today's corporate society can be remarkably liberating. After reading this book, no one who works for a living will ever think the same way about his or her job. So that's that's a, one version of like a quick synopsis, but in about... Wow. Ten chapters, it breaks down the literal process of what I got to see, even from my own colleagues. Even in the world of oriental medicine, what has become that, you know, say like 20 years ago when I literally was just beginning to touch upon this subject uh, intellectually, the professionals, they would have to go, they would take one paper test to be an acupuncturist and they'd be free to change their answers and there'd be only so much, you know, that they would really have to spit out on that test. Multiple choice, but you know, even that was very arbitrary. Twenty years before them, those people were literally grandfathered in. They just had to have like demonstrate some level of training, and they're proficient, and that's good enough for, for everyone concerned. They get their license. And nowadays, just like myself, uh, you know, only only some set of years ago when I finally got my license, uh, what it is is. An incredible, really harsh system of the four years of all these many, many tests through the four years of college, Oriental Medical College. And then finally, the badass board exams where you go in front of a computer and up until recently it was an adaptive test. That means that of the 35 categories of knowledge for each board exam, the computer is logging whether you, you know, you get one chance to enter each question in. You see the counter ticking down 150 minutes hundred forty nine and various seconds you get one chance to answer each question and if you get one wrong the computer will note that and it if you get another one wrong it will note that and now now it'll consider maybe you don't know anything on that subject so it starts to throw you more from that category just to see you know Mm. so what i'm trying to show you is that like as part of the whole regulatory capture business and the rent seeking behavior they, you know, this is what a monopoly will do. They'll limit the number of effective practitioners by throwing these arbitrary metrics in there to really, really disturb the crap out of the new practitioners, limiting the number of potential practitioners and making an artificial scarcity, which is what monopolies love to do. So, yeah, that, that would be just a thing that I wanted to put in there. But here's something I want to just make a claim at. From all that I can see... The MD doctors who serve people who become my clients do not know what they're doing in terms of, they don't know the full ramifications of the therapies, medicines, and services that they provide to those people and hurt them unknowingly, usually, or just throwing up their hands saying, oh, well, patient didn't respond as you know the study said, so, oh, well. And those people are ending up hurt and then they become my clients. MDs are making clients for me and people in my business. They are hurting lots of people. I mean, look up, um, you know, uh, Death in Medicine by Gary Null as an article that was pretty much an attempt to really summarize many decades of how this has been going. So I'm not trying to make a blanket statement like all MDs are hurting people. I'm trying to say very simply that many, 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 many MDs are hurting people unknowingly, mostly, occasionally, knowingly, and you know, uh, buyer beware, you know, caveat emptor, you know, it's too bad if you didn't learn your Latin. I'm sorry. You know, you <laughs> bought it mean, if you didn't, you know. Yeah.
2: Th- I, I just wanted to say that doesn't mean that other types of medicine or supplements or whatever couldn't hurt people as well. No, it doesn't any. at
0: all. If you didn't do your research, if you did not have some mechanism, many colleagues in my specific license, they don't have effective methods of measurement to really test the biocompatibility for each unique medicine or supplement to your client that would be a subset of chiropractic people who utilize applied and clinical kinesiology and more advanced fields that come from that the various computerized technologies that run off of that to really check for biocompatibility i'm not saying and and when they're honest about it they say and yes we also can get it wrong using those metrics you know that's very simple so i was trained by that subset of chiropractic to understand that as well most of my acupuncture colleagues they're guessing they're using their intuition they're using their book learning they're researching and they're just they're basically just guessing mm-hmm. certainly the md's are completely just guessing they're just doing the exact same thing research thinking about it getting a feel for it you know many many of my colleagues and are they hurting people absolutely
2: Absolutely. That's why they call it the you practice know. of medicine, right? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. And, and at least, at least, my homeopathic doctor was—he was, at least—he was on it. Like he was—he was really honest about that. He was like, you know, I uh, we have—I've—I've uh, done—I've done research on this. I think—I it, think it'll help you. But uh, as you know, I mean, it's—it's it's the practice of medicine. So I mean, yeah, yeah you are—you are kind of a—you are kind of a test subject. I want to see—I want to see if, if this is—if this is effective or not. Which a doctor is like—I guess just a normal doctor has never told me that.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, that I goes back say, to the. Yeah. Yeah, that goes back to the performance art. I mean, I, I'm actually a big fan of saying. Yep, I don't know, (laughs) and owning it it when I really don't know something. (laughs) It was actually, you know, hard for me to even think about like faking it, you know, like pretending that I was completely confident of something. I feel just very hesitant to do that. And, but it's, yet it's something that's often done. It's a common practice in MDs and with hospitals. Oh, yes, this is the thing that will work. I know best for you. Um, When in reality, the person may not actually be that confident. And so I think I would, as a patient, I would probably trust somebody more. More who was willing to own it and say, "Yeah, I don't really know." If they didn't know truthfully, exactly. I Um, confirm
0: that my clients who like work with me regularly or over a span of many months or years, they appreciate when I demonstrate some levels of humility and an interest and curiosity in learning more. That you know, to admit where I do I have limits, um, to certainly acknowledge where I think I may have caused problems, to acknowledge where I'm trying certainly to do mm -hmm. better. Um, right but you
2: never want to acknowledge it as an md because you might get sued right you could be admitting something that would incriminate you or something or make set you up for a lawsuit and yeah. and that's like i mean i i do know some mds who do who freely admit when they've made a mistake and they completely own up to it but there is definitely a a uh, an idea out there in medicine mm-hmm. that says you shouldn't admit when you're wrong. It's like when you get into a car accident, you should never say I'm sorry because then they could come back and say, well, he said I'm sorry, so that must mean he admitted it was his fault, right?
0: <laughs> hey, here's yeah. an interesting thing I just learned only this year, Stephanie, in my state, Hawaii, to sue a medical practitioner successfully, to file the suit, cost forty thousand dollars. That is not wow. hiring a lawyer that is not a retainer for a lawyer that is just to file the suit cost 40 grand period so unless someone made
2: that law the doctors and the The lawyers
0: (laughs) yeah and i mean everyone myself included like every medical professional is covered by this and like so how many people you think here get sued medically speaking yeah so if when uh, were i to say to any of my client i'm i'm so sorry you understand that you know this was one of the risks acupuncture can cause bruises you know and and bruises have indeed happened sometimes you know if they ever was even as like a smidgen of an idea of an attempt to do that they would find it quite a rude awakening to find out that you know not only is the acupuncture board here going to fully protect me for that you know but very likely that they they don't have the money to frivolously <laughs> Throw that out there, you know, like that's just incredible. You you may as well be spending literally hundreds of thousands of dollars for a successful suit, you know. Mm-hmm. And I would literally, it would be like an, a surgeon having to leave a screwdriver in you or something, you know, where you can literally prove it with <laughs> an actual right. image showing like here's before and after, and here's the screwdriver, you know.
2: Wow. That's it's- fascinating, Daryl. I didn't I didn't know that. I mean, I know it's been a big issue for a lot of medical practitioners all around and every state is different, like you were saying in the U.S. here. Um, But the cost of insurance, especially in some fields like OBGYN that are are very, like, have a lot of lawsuits, um, is just astronomical and it makes it so that even fewer doctors can practice. And they have to like kind of join up into these larger practices where, of course, you you're gonna there's going to be different things expected of you. You can't just be a solopreneur as a doctor and afford your insurance. You have to join a big practice. And as part of that, you have to, you know, work within probably certain practice guidelines. You know, they might have policies and procedures that are specific to that practice. You might not be able to take risks and do certain things um, in your practice, you, um, you know, you might have to toe a political line even to be in good graces with your co-workers. So it just centralizes it even more.
1: Yeah. And, and I think one of one the one other thing to kind of, kind of kind of look at, too, there was a video we played in part one uh, by Ben Golaker. Uh, actually, the, there's there's actually a couple. I'll start with the, the first one. Uh, AstroTurf and the Manipulation of Media Messages. Uh, and this was she was like a CBS reporter or something. And she was talking about uh, how uh, the doc, like the, the, uh, there's a, a new drug on the market. Uh, the doctors go to some conference. They, they, even, even when they do their due diligence and they look at their research papers, they only see the positive ones because a lot of, a lot of the other ones aren't published. Uh, uh most of the time the negative, the negative, uh, uh, the negative results. And then you come to find out the conference is actually funded by, uh, by that, that, uh, pharmaceutical company. And, uh, uh, so even, even when there is some, some, I guess some due diligence, like, okay, you know, I'll, I'll read the, I'll read the, uh, the, the, the research, research results and, and see what's happening there. Uh, and, uh, and, and try to find out if this, if this, if this drug is good. Um, and obviously if it's not published, I mean, you really can't hold that against the doctors if that, if that information is not available. Uh, so well, I guess, I guess the that's, rebuttal that's another to, aspect.
2: I guess the rebuttal to that could be that if, if there weren't positive data to publish, then you just wouldn't hear about the drug at all. But I mean, I, I don't know that that's necessarily true. Um, it certainly I think you could certainly say it does bias to only hear the positive results and not the negative when there's mixed results from a certain drug or whatever. Um, and by the way, I know we're coming up on the break soon, but I, I just want to tell this quick story. I had a yeah. professor in medical school who was beloved by the students everybody liked him and he would always come in with all these tchotchkes. like he had a, a bag and he had like a, an umbrella and he had like a briefcase and he had a, a, a oh he always tons of pens and pocket protectors and rulers and compasses and everything you could imagine but everything had little pieces of tape on it and so eventually he told us why he had everything he had had tape on it it was because it was all from pharma companies but he put tape over the labels so that it, he could accept those things and not have to look at the name of the drug and um he could just use the object without he thought being biased by it And I thought that was kind of funny because most (laughs) doctors don't even bother to do that. They'll just have a mug full of pens in their office that have the names of drugs on them. And there are actual studies that show that that does bias their prescribing. They'll bias towards prescribing that drug if they have the name of it right in front of them.
0: yeah, I'm just going to hide yeah, my pork therapy mug over here. You know?
2: yeah. <laughs> You're biased towards me.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I, I saw it on this was a meme on the internet, but uh, uh, um, there was a doctor who saved all of his, uh, like all of the stuff he was given free from ph- pharmaceutical companies for years of, of, of practicing. And, uh, like, he had this, like, in t- this big, like, uh, this big display. And I mean, yeah, you, you gotta imagine, like, I, I don't know, what, what do you think, uh, uh and, and maybe you'll know this, this better than, better than, uh, better than me, Stephanie, but, uh, like, how many, what do you think, like, a couple drug companies a day come to me with a, do- me with a doctor, or, or is it that frequent? I, I, I don't, I would, I would imagine it it's probably pretty frequent.
2: It depends what kind of doctor you are, but yeah, I mean, pharmaceutical companies, most of their money is spent on advertising and marketing. It is not spent on research and development. Research and development, the average pharma company, about 16 to 15 to 20% of their budget is spent on R&D, whereas about 50 to 60% is spent on marketing. And so, I mean, that just shows you where (laughs) where Where the priorities lie, (laughs) where the priorities lie, but where it makes the most sense for them. Just, I mean, I don't, you could say pharma companies are evil, but I think they're just responding to the incentives of the system that they're in. And so naturally they act that way, you know, because that's what it makes sense for them to do or else they wouldn't survive.
1: Yeah. 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 That's, that's definitely true. Daryl, anything?
0: I just was imagining what about the collusion that happened both in the decades and centuries before these medical industries started and then up to the present moment, where like the distinction between these regulating agencies and the people who work in them, and these corporations and the people who work in them, and the revolving door between them both,
2: mm-hmm.
0: it seems to me like it's one massive building. Where, or I would say, three buildings. You know, you have the actual corporation that you described very logically, where it's like, of course, it's mostly marketing to make the money. Then, of course, they have the money goes to the lobbyist of the that that wing, and mm-hmm. and they write That's the legislation. One. And then that goes over to the government then who passes the laws and have the actual regulating agencies that benefit those corporations. And they all basically lubricate each other, you know, and that seems like what's going on as far as I can tell.
1: I'm your host Shane, and with me are uh, my two very, very special guests, uh, Daryl Becker from Voluntary Visions, and uh, and uh, I won't say it, Stephanie Murphy uh, from uh, Sex and Science, the Sex and Science <laughs> Hour podcast. Uh, definitely, definitely go check out all their stuff. Uh, if you're just tuning in, uh, you're going to want to listen to the first hour of this broadcast. I mean, for it's, it's been fascinating for me, uh, so I, I guarantee uh, uh, you'll want to go back and, and check out this uh, this uh, this podcast in its entirety. Uh, but but uh, welcome back, guys. Uh, I, uh, there, I mentioned before break that, uh, uh you guys want to discuss, uh, placebo. Uh, and before I, before I get into that, uh, uh I remember in Ben Golaker's presentation, it was, uh, what doctors don't know about, uh, uh, the medicine they prescribe or something along those lines. I'll link it in the show notes. But uh, he was talking about the results of various studies, and he noted that one person died by, by taking the the, the, the uh, sugar pill uh, in one of the particular studies. Uh, I mean, the, uh, the mind the is a truly truly uh, fascinating thing. Uh, before I toss over you guys, I'll, I'll I'll go ahead and uh, uh and as per the trivia method, I'll go ahead and define placebo for those who don't know. or just just so we're on just the a same second,
2: page. just a right, second, up, Shane. The person who uh, died, I mean, there were patients who were sick. They had just had heart attacks, so it was like the pl- in this placebo group, which didn't receive the drug, one person died, but then in the group that received the drug, 10 people died. So you could say in their study, they're setting it up to be like, okay, a death of one person would be like the baseline without any treatment.
1: Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well. Well. Let's. But there that's, is such a thing as
2: there is such a thing as the so-called nocebo effect. Which why don't you get into what is the definition of placebo first, and then we'll talk about nocebo because that's a thing too.
1: Oh, uh, learning learn you know, near learning new things every day. But uh, yeah, pl- uh, this is just from from Wikipedia. Placebo uh, is a simulated or otherwise medically ineffectual treatment for a disease or other medical condition uh, intended to deceive uh, the recipients. Uh, a person given such an effectual treatment will often have perceived or actual improvement in their condition, a phenomenon commonly called the placebo effect or placebo response. Uh, several different elements contribute to the effect, and the methods of placebo administration may be as important as the administration uh, itself. Uh, and while I'm looking, uh, or or do you got? Do, does one of you have the uh, definition for a nocebo right now? Uh, can you can you explain that?
2: Yeah, I could say I could say that. Um, so. The placebo effect is a benefit from a supposedly innocuous treatment—a you know, a sugar pill or something like that, a fake surgery or something. A nocebo effect is a negative effect. It's like a perceived side effect or an adverse effect from a supposedly innocuous treatment. I actually re- i actually like. Um, I haven't read it in a while, but the last time I read that Wikipedia article, which may have changed, about placebo effect. It was fascinating and it was a great, um, summary of all the things that can go into it. A placebo is supposed to be a, um, dummy pill, something that's meant to make the patient think, okay, well, I'm taking a pill and the, presumably this is the medicine, but it's actually not medicine. There's actually, um, there used to be a children's, um, so-called like medicine called Obicalp, which is placebo spelled backwards. And all it is is like syrup. It's just like corn syrup and it's for, parents to give to their kids when the kids like, I don't feel good. I want some medicine. Mommy, I'm sick or whatever. And, and, and they go, here, honey, have some opi calp. And it's just sugar. It's, it all it is is corn syrup. And so they're relying on the placebo effect to get the kid to, I guess, shut up. I think this is a terrible practice because it tells the kid that you know probably they have some emotional distress going on or they need some attention or something and they're asking for medicine to to cover up an emotional pain and and then the mother or father is lying to them or the adult is lying to them and saying that they're giving medicine when it's really not so it's bad all around but um that is the placebo effect when you get a supposedly innocuous treatment and you feel better or you feel, uh, or there is an, an actual or perceived, as you said, improvement in your condition. And as we said, nocebo is the opposite where you take a dummy pill, a sugar pill or something, and then you say, oh my God, I feel really sick. My head hurts. My stomach hurts. Everything's going dark. You know, help me. <laughs> I'm coming, Jesus. <laughs> so. So that's the nocebo effect. And these these things show up in in the real world. There was actually a study... on non-celiac gluten intolerance the idea that some people are they don't have frank celiac disease but they're intolerant to gluten which is a protein that's found in wheat and so they have to eat a gluten-free diet and now gluten-free diets are becoming more popular is that yep. because awareness of wheat-free diets is get, is gaining popularity and there's more awareness about it so more people who had previously been in the dark about their digestive problems are now seeing the light Or is it because a bunch of people hear about it and then they think, Oh yeah, I must have that too. And I'm a special snowflake. And this, these researchers were trying to test, you know, whether this is real. And they gave a group of people who said they have, um, wheat sensitivity uh, pills. And one week they gave them gluten in the pills. The next week they gave them milk protein in the pills. And they, then they switched them. And, and basically no matter what they gave these people, they said that they felt sick. And so some people chalked it up to a nocebo effect, like they've taken this pill, they think it's gluten, and then they got sick, so therefore it's all in their head. Some people criticized the study and said that, you know, they could usually people who are allergic to wheat have other food sensitivities as well. So perhaps they were also allergic to the milk protein. Um, so that one is kind of inconclusive or up to debate in my mind. Of course, it takes multiple studies to really tease out an effect sometimes. But uh, but yeah, that's placebo and nocebo. Now the placebo effect. Um, and if you guys want to jump in, go ahead. I'd just love to talk about this because I'm fascinated by it. But- I,
1: I just I just want to mention one thing in regards to, to the gluten thing. It, it seems it's it's I guess what I see people doing. Uh, I guess in regards to going for for gluten free, uh, it's way more expensive. I, yeah, but but anyways, uh, uh, I th- I think a lot of people are. Uh, It's kind of similar to when I decided, you know, something needs to change, like, and I don't know, I don't know where to go. So I'll just start by eating organic. I think it's just kind of, well, you know, I've heard of gluten free, maybe that's what's going on. Uh, So Mm. I think that's that, 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 that could that maybe that could be part of it. Uh, but uh, There but is, anyway, they, they say,
2: a, there's a connection. There's a gene that a lot of people have that's associated with type 1 diabetes that is also associated with celiac disease and gluten intolerance. So oh. I don't think that's a crazy idea if you're type 1 diabetic to eat a gluten-free diet. I would certainly do that, but, um, you know... There, so you're not crazy. Shana. <laughs> well,
1: no, no. I, I was, I, yeah. I was, I was, just, I was just saying, like, whenever I, whenever I wanted to start making changes, I had no, I had no idea w- where to start, and I, I, I knew, I, I mean, obviously, I, I kind of knew like fast food and stuff was bad, but I just took it to the extreme and just like started uh, spending a lot more on just, just eating organic, 100 percent at the time. Um, so yeah. I think well, that's, that's I sort that's of a gluten free thing too.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the risks, right? Because sometimes people are kind of like desperate they can't figure out what's going on with their health and they're like I'll do anything to get my health back but I just don't know what to do and then the risk is they may end up spending a lot of money on supplements or or you know drastically changing their lifestyle so they're giving up their favorite foods in order to eat gluten-free and maybe that wouldn't even help so that there's always a yeah. risk sort of with every treatment there's there's some risk and there's maybe some benefit Um, but often treatments are not harmless. And that's something we see a lot in medicine, especially with some of the, the heavy duty drugs that get prescribed. And when they're being prescribed for every symptom, you know, to sort of cover up and treat, address the symptoms, um, you know, those, those treatments all have side effects and they can interact with each other. Um, but anyway, getting back to the placebo effect, um, (laughs) it's, it's kind of amazing because a placebo could be anything. It could be a sugar pill if the treatment is like a pill that you have to swallow. It could be an injection of saline if it's something that you inject. So it would just be an injection of salt water. It could be a, a sham surgery. So you knock the person out, you make a cut, but then you don't do the thing to their vertebrae, for instance, if there's like a back surgery that they're testing. Um, and actually, the more invasive the placebo um, the, the stronger the placebo effect So you get a bigger uh, Placebo effect from a fake injection Than you do from a fake pill Even the sight of a doctor Appearing in a white coat Is enough to induce a placebo effect sometimes So that goes back wow. to the performance Aspect of it Right You know, just somebody showing up. And Daryl was saying that some folks accuse what he does of of just completely being placebo. And Mm -hmm. I don't, you don't, do you agree with that, Daryl? Or do you think some of it is placebo, but not all of it? Or what do you think? Because definitely some of what Western doctors do is placebo.
0: (laughs) I wanted to just go to my own opinion of what is going on which is Mm -hmm. like a bit more flexible and speculative, meaning I don't know what's going on. I don't fully understand the power of the mind of myself or my clients. Mm -hmm. So within that flexibility, I can see that here's what I do know. Every little thing has an impact. There's no such thing as a non-impact placebo. Mm-hmm. Every little tiny thing has a humongous impact, whether it's the syrup or the saline or the incision, which of course means that you're cutting along meridians. You know, you're doing things basically and
2: inducing yeah. a stress response in the body, yeah, mm-hmm.
0: yeah, yeah, as well as now you've got cortisol levels and you have all those types of things going on. So
2: right. That's but, why the appropriate you know yeah. match to a testing an actual surgery or an actual drug is a placebo and not nothing, right?
0: Well, you, the, here's the problem with the difference the way i'm looking at it is clinically as my my heavy metric is clinically what are the other practitioners lay practitioners and professional practitioners doing to affect the changes that i desire and and that's like what i heavily weight like when i go to research something i look directly in that direction the studies are trying to get a generality and they, like, even including placebo studies, they are far less useful to me as an effective practitioner. And I had to learn that per force. Because those practitioners who, who are like heavy on the studies and light on their clinical, they usually get worse results than in, in my field, than mm-hmm. those who are heavy on clinical and light on studies. So what I, I understand is like, I have great humility, I don't know, no one knows. It is a mystery the power of the mind and the power of one's emotions to affect everything. Now, some people would, would you know harness that power and they could pretty much do it on their own and and that's wonderful because I've got other things to do and I'd rather that they took care of themselves you know. Um, mm. And there's plenty of people who could use some guidance and help and that's awesome because I right now that's how I make my living and you know and in, in the future I'll I'll add to that. But but what I wanted to say is that. With the flexibility of I don't know for sure, I don't think of anything as a placebo. I think of anything of things as having effects. Everything has effects mm. on everything. There's no such thing to me as a placebo. If you're speaking of the power of the mind, I'll just say the power of the mind. If you're speaking of power of emotions, I'll spe- say power of emotions. It's kind of like I want to be precise with my terms. So
2: yeah, that, absolutely. Um, and, Even like a the sugar treatment is going to like for Shane, that's a big deal you know, it's It's going to affect his blood sugar. (laughs) Yeah, Mm
0: -hmm. there's no such thing that is a non-effect thing that turns into only the mind's effect to me. And so therefore, yeah, nothing that I, like in objectively looking at what I do in in practice, nothing that I do from even just like sitting there in front of a person and opening my mouth, Mm -hmm. nothing. That I do is a non-effect. Everything mm. has an effect. Every single little thing has an effect. So there is no placebo in my, you know, opinion. There's just only there's the effect that I'm aiming for and then there's what's happening. And you know, there's the difference between the two. I'm trying to take measurements yeah. and figure it out.
2: I absolutely hear what you're saying. I mean, it it is true that these Placebo treatments that are supposed to be innocuous often really aren't. And the placebo effect can be huge, especially for certain things. Like when we're talking about medical research, the reason they use placebo treatments is to try to isolate the effect of the drug from the effect of everything else that goes around with it, whether it's swallowing a pill or the color of the pill or blah, blah, blah. Um, But, you know, with certain things like depression, um, ED, erectile dysfunction in males, you know, those are the things where they test a lot of drugs and the placebo has the same effect. And you'll see like a 30% benefit in the patients that are getting placebo. And it's about the same as the drug. (laughs) So, I mean, obviously it's not a non, it's not a non effectual thing. And, um, Getting back to, to like things that affect the strength of the placebo effect, the color of a pill, like red pills are the most effective. Funny, huh? Like taking the mm-hmm. red pill. <laughs> um, a more expensive placebo is more effective. Now, this was a study. I remember I was in medical school when this one got published and this was freaking people out really bad because what it said was essentially the more expensive a placebo pill is, the greater the placebo effect so basically what, what that <laughs> what that means is you know a lot of supplements which you know you can argue a lot of them don't go through rigorous testing, they might not even be what they say they are. a lot of them are what they say they are, you know they're verified by third party labs, but basically that study said that you can get a stronger placebo effect if somebody pays more for the pill. And so then how do you then separate that from, oh, well, this this really works for me because of a biological effect versus it's a placebo because I paid a lot for this expensive sugar pill. Wow.
0: Um, I, I totally wanted to respond to that quickly. So yeah, go just, for it. Please, yeah, so it works that way in the world of online courses for, for those yes. of you who don't understand. <laughs> Perceived like,
2: value, right?
0: uh-huh exactly if you if if I wrote up like how to use all the cognitive and empathetic skills that I've got and sold it to you guys for fifty dollars you can feel fine with throwing it away or essentially not using it because you you know it was the cost of uh, dinner for you and your loved one at going out and you know oh well so you had a bad dinner if you spend five hundred dollars or a thousand dollars on it now you're incentivized to follow through and actually do all the work now you're incentivized to try it
2: The stakes are higher. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So it's really that simple. But in the end of it all, it it is that type of thing where to imagine, I think this goes into the addiction or I would say the compulsion for people to be certain about the conclusions. There's so much desire for people to be really, really certain. Oh, medicine has figured it out. They've Mm. studied it. All that money and these lab coats and the years of schooling and the destructive training that they went through, a la, like disciplined minds by Jeff Schmidt, all of that equals, Oh, now I can be certain. Now I can rest easy because someone figured it all out. The real scary, actually thing is that those people who went through all that traumatic training are likely completely fooled and are literally virtual fools. And they <laughs> are passing their foolishness on by and large. They, do the best they can. And I'm not saying I'm immune to that. The difference is that I will have a bit more flexibility and humility about it. I will just acknowledge, I don't know. And mm-hmm. I'll do that in practice. And I, that's, that's a huge difference because then with that that makes it so that I can say, I'd like to know. How can I find out? I'm looking for effectiveness. I'm looking for a predicted and desired result. How do, Who else got the predicted and desired result that I'm seeking? And that's where I let my fingers do the walking. I start looking into it with an open mind. Now, if you have a healthcare condition that scares the shit out of you, if you are literally like just really, really tense about the subject, I would speculate that your research skills are seriously going down. Because now mm-hmm. you're scared, and, and now you're, you have you're, a are looking. Pressure. You're
1: looking for that magic pill. Yeah,
0: low, yeah low of course you're again. looking. Yeah. You'd love to have certainty, wouldn't you? And if you've been trained your whole life to raise your hand and have the correct answer, and to imagine that no one has a correct answer, or that the people who are raising their hands and who are being claimed as correct are actually very inaccurate, as you get to find out, You know, if we touched upon the science of plate tectonics and what happened to that poor man, you know, um, the guy who proposed that, for example, he what literally happened had to, to
2: that poor man. I well, don't he know had to
0: die and literally be vindicated. Like, like, like everyone in his whole field had to die, and the next generation had to come forward in order for people to be flexible enough to open up and actually measure the distance between continents. Do you understand what I'm saying? Is like you have these entrenched ideas in these so-called fields of science. And there's a... Like I said, due to the indoctrination training of government school, people are conditioned to look for certainty and crave certainty, to be obsessed with certainty on these things. And if your salary depends upon you not understanding something, you can bet that there's all these people who will not take the time to understand it. Mm -hmm. They will be very much wishing to, you know, be certain about a conclusion. So if we were to touch upon... Any field of science, like like I said, you know, plate tectonics, that'd be like a hobby thing that I, I, I like slightly touch into. But there are other topics, too, like, for example, you know, astrophysics and the actual, you know, uh, formation of planets and stars and, and how things are connected solar system, galaxy wise, etc. There's like a standard model that's promoted on television, that's promoted in high school for sure, that's promoted in low-level universities, and you get up to a higher level of endeavor, and you suddenly find out that what was being promoted in those other things I mentioned is actually extremely in question to the people who are in the research level, that they know that that the story that's put out is totally false. I know from my field of medicine that it's like that, like that there's a front story And then, like, years and years later or sometimes, and for those who are in the know, we know right away that that front story is total bullshit. Total bullshit, you know. And every endeavor, when I talk to any scientist who's gone, like, pretty far up the ladder, they can acknowledge, say, if I talk to, like, a macroevolutionary biologist, they can acknowledge, yeah, we're really trying to still, like, prove this one. But you talk to the people (laughs) who are, like, considerably lower down, they're like, oh, it's totally proven. You know, someone who's at the BA level, for example, mm. but you yeah, go all the way up to the of, research and, you know, the research level PhD and they're like, no, I will, you know, like, I don't, don't let anyone know this, but we don't have it together. You know, we, we totally, this seems, and no, that one's not true. And that's not true. We have micro evolutionary proof, but we don't have macro at all, at all, at all. And. <laughs> To acknowledge that would be, to a lot of people, a huge slap because, again, people are conditioned to look for certainty, and, and that's what I wanted to touch upon.
1: Yeah, and it reminds me of uh, I, I got I, I kind of have these uh, I guess it's typically once a year where I binge watch like everything space and the universe, and uh, uh, I was I was watching I was watching th- uh, this year it was just obviously the stuff on Netflix and uh, some other documentaries and then one of them was on string theory and, uh, uh, it, and it, it was it was really hilarious just to watch like uh, I, I don't know, they'd interview like uh, I don't know ten scientists and they're like yeah this is what this is what's happening but we don't know why the hell it's happening like uh, we we have yeah we have no idea whatsoever it. doesn't doesn't make any sense uh and we may never know and it's like okay well uh, at least at least they're they're kind of admitting it but uh uh uh, stephanie got anything
2: um i have so many things i don't know where to (laughs) where to begin um i don't remember but i did want to talk a little bit about the book about um disciplined minds yeah 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 i i really well first of all i wanted to say to daryl i really liked your um Synopsis of it, or the synopsis that you read, that really spoke to me. Um, you know, <laughs> just about about what people go through and how you kind of have to. Um, this is why people aren't happy in professional fields. Like I left for a reason because I wasn't happy, and a lot of the stuff that um, Jeff Schmidt was describing it really resonated with me. So I'm definitely going to check out that book, and I'm going to uh, I'm going to read it. Maybe we could talk about it later. But um, one thing that it reminded me of was this phenomenon called resident burnout, which happens among medical students and medical residents. And this is very well documented. There's hundreds of studies, maybe even thousands of studies about this. And it's a real phenomenon. They call it burnout. And and basically what it means is that medical professionals, because of the long work hours, because of the not seeing some quite traumatic things like, you know, people's guts and people dying and people being really sick and suffering, you know, seeing these things that are traumatizing and not having time to process them, not even having time to take care of themselves and do basic self care like sleep. Mm -hmm. Um, they just start to lose it and they get depressed they lose their empathy for patients. They start viewing people more as a collection of body parts than as like a person that's a whole person. And it affects the quality of care that they're able to give patients, and it also affects their own lives. So many people, I think it was nearly everybody that I came into medical school with in my class starting out ended up getting divorced later on. If they were married when they came into medical school, they ended up divorced. So many people-
0: Same same for me, Stephanie. Mm. Same. Wow,
2: that's interesting. So, yeah, what in is case it you like? Know. <laughs> yeah, what is what are the work hours like? I mean, it's 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 pretty bad, huh?
0: It's not as bad. No, not it's as not bad. Yeah, as I bad. Um, there, there's a golden, beautiful thing about Oriental Medical College, but I don't. I mean, it's just it's called clinic. Um, mm. But it, it depends on the clinic, the flexibility. I mean, if it's a humongous school and you're cutting open cadavers like some Oriental Medical students do, there's that. But for the small ones, you know, it's beautiful and it's amazing, and that's that's your your golden moment. But a lot of the stuff is just like these hours of busy work and make work that you're you're going through the motions of just demonstrating that you're clever and you're able to repeat things. And uh, the stress of doing that and not being able to like have really much time to make extra money, hold down a job, or anything like that. My marriage. Done. You know, absolutely. Um, Mm. Many relationships, boyfriend, girlfriend split up. Many of that happened. I I watched it all happen around me and lived it.
2: I did too. (laughs) (laughs) I did too. (laughs) And yeah, it's, it's a real thing. I mean, how can someone be expected... There's like, you have to have your own ho- house in order first, right? Like, if you're not getting enough sleep, if you're not healthy yourself, if you're driven to indulge in habits like, you know, maybe you smoke or whatever, or if you're like, if you're doing things to escape, maybe you drink or drugs or whatever. Um, if you're, if you're just basically not having enough time to process what goes on and to even integrate that knowledge that you're learning, how can you be expected to take care of other people? It's, it's r- ridiculous. It's almost like, they're set up to fail, and it's set up for this to happen. Not that I think it's a conspiracy or it's orchestrated. It's just that this is—it's one of those it's things just, where it's just this a is nat- what's it's always just
1: the nature of the beast. Yeah.
2: This I is what's, so what's always do been it, done, like, and this is how it's going to be. This is what happened <laughs> to me, so this is what you have to do. You know.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely true. And I, I have I have a family friend who she's she's she got her bachelor's bachelor's degree. She's trying to become a physician's assistant, uh, so it's it's like a five-year program. So it's not even it's not she's not even going for a PhD at least at least yet. Uh, but uh, I mean, uh, I, I remember when when we go when we go uh, camping down at our property, she would uh, uh, she would. I mean, she was telling me like she goes she went to class from eight to five every single day. And essentially, when she got home, all she would do is study. And mm-hmm. I think now she's in like 12 hour shifts for for clinical trials or wh- 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 whatever the term is for that. And uh, just the, the amount of, of pressure that puts on an individual is uh, I, it's it, it just it seems insane to me. Uh, it's been a great conversation uh, thus far. I uh, uh, I was looking I was looking back at the outline and I think we've I, I don't think it's, it's I don't think we've really even I mean, the starting point was all that was really necessary and the rest of it just kind of just kind of flowed naturally, which is uh, I, I definitely uh, I definitely prefer that uh, if possible. So it's uh, it's been great so far. Like I said before break, I think it's time to get into uh, scientific uh, uh, scientific consensus. And uh, uh, Daryl, let's turn it over to you like I did for for part uh, for part one. Uh, what's uh, what's the definition of scientific uh, consensus?
0: From what I got here in front of me, scientific consensus is the collective judgment, position, and opinion of the community of scientists in a particular field of study. Consensus implies general agreement, though not necessarily unanimity. Consensus is normally achieved through communication at conferences, the publication process, replication, reproducible results by others, and peer review. These... This is, this is such a, a, a beautiful fairy tale. These lead to a situation in which those within the discipline can often recognize such a consensus where it exists, but communicating to outsiders that consensus has been reached can be difficult because the, quote, normal debates through which science progresses may seem to outsiders as contestation. On occasion, scientific Institutes issue proposition statements intended to communicate a summary of the science from the inside, quote, to the, quote, outside of the scientific community. In cases where there is little controversy regarding the subject under study, establishing what the consensus is can be quite straightforward. So that's just straight up Wikipedia on the the phrase scientific consensus. Um, and. Yeah, um, I I just wanted to say, you know, just like look up the history of plate tectonics theory and who came up with that and, and what happened to the guy when he proposed it. You know, despite all evidence and everything like that, and then how long it took for everyone to die before people would be ready to actually look at his measurements and actually change the previous conclusions.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah. Really- I, wanted, I wanted to bring up, and I mentioned this in part one, um, but uh, for those who, who didn't hear it, uh, and I actually found out who put, who put this up. It was Dr. is Daniel Rothschild who I met at Anarchon uh, this, uh, earlier this month. Uh, very, very intelligent dude. Uh, quote, the term scientific consensus is an oxymoron. Science is true, verifiable, aka provable knowledge. Consensus is a popularity contest. Something is, is either true or untrue. The number of people who believe in it, i.e. consensus, is irrelevant. Take the shape of the Earth, for example. The Earth wasn't flat when that was the consensus of the scientific community, and then became round when the consensus changed. Rather, the Earth was always round and the consensus was wrong. Not to mention those who made the biggest scientific breakthroughs were primarily those who went against the consensus. The argument from consensus is like the argument from authority. It is used by people who have no argument and so rely on numbers instead, yet truth or facts exist irrespective of what the consensus is or not." Uh, quote. Uh, so when I toss in there, I really it was really really good in my opinion. I think, he, I think he he nailed it right on the head, but uh Stephanie you're going you're going to jump in there.
2: Oh, yeah, it was just the the story about the person who came up with plate tectonics reminded me of um there was another case of uh uh, a scientist sort of sacrificing himself on the altar to prove an unpopular theory, which was the person who discovered um, H. pylori, Helicobacter pylori, and the mm. connection with stomach ulcers. Nobody believed him. And I, I'm sorry, I don't have his name right up in front of me, but nobody believed him. And so what did he do? He grew the bacteria in his lab and he drank it and he got an ulcer. And then wow. he took antibiotics and he got rid of his ulcer and he got rid of the well,
1: he, he was he was committed, eh? <laughs>
2: yeah, he was incredibly committed. So you don't see that very often. Um, but then after that they finally believed him. Well that's
1: good. That's good to hear. <laughs> yeah, that's good that wasn't all for nothing.
2: Oh. <laughs> yeah, Shane, I like I like the um what you said about the number of people who believe something has absolutely no relevance to whether it's true or not. (laughs) But, you know, just to play devil's advocate, um, scientific consensus, you know, um, what if it's just like, sometimes it's annoying to have to explain over and over again to people outside of your field who don't have the same educational background as you do, that may have taken years to build up. And they just don't, get it like they're making ignorant claims that aren't that are clearly easily you know maybe not so easily but claims that are clearly like not true and they're they're putting it out there and saying like well this is this is how it is and should you should the burden of proof be on you to explain it to them every time over and over again patiently that this is the way it is or should maybe people just trust you a little bit because you're an expert i think that's the devil's advocate position there. It's like a shorthand. It's like, okay, we trust scientists because that's what they do. That's their area of expertise. So we should just listen to them because they know what it is. And maybe we don't have the years of knowledge to understand this, but they do.
0: Oh, I, I was going to ask you, can you give an example where you have heard someone refute some piece of science that you strongly conclude is actually true? And you know, you've spent some time looking into it
2: yeah, um like people who right now in the present day claim that the earth is flat.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, I won't say it's not entertaining because it is entertaining, but I mean, it's oh, like
1: it's, it's extremely entertaining to go through some of those those Facebook threads they're defending like they're spending so much time trying to defend that. My god. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. I,
0: what I like to do when I well, first of all, anytime I talk with someone is I identify what are my objectives in this communication. Just like I had with you yeah. guys today. Like mm-hmm. I'm pretty clear on like I, I had like a list of objectives on on the whole thing. And so far, I feel pretty happy about achieving them. But if I was talking to someone who was strong in their conclusion that the earth is flat, I would be asking him this pretty important question that I, I got from uh, one of my friends. Would you be willing to walk me through the process of how you came to this conclusion? You know, Mm -hmm. just show me like step by step how you came there. If I, if I was really, they would be
2: willing to walk you through it. Sure. (laughs) Yeah. If
0: I was really interested, but the the point is, can they do it? Can they actually do it concisely? Or are they going to go off on a tangent? You know, can they stay focused enough to do it? Mm -hmm. And there's a difference between saying that they are going to do it and them following through, there's a difference between them making it concise rather than like too long, didn't read versions, for example. You know, um, the skill of communicating and and bringing it down to here's the elevator pitch version, here is the synopsis, like what I read for Disciplined Minds, and then you know here's the actual like you know the, the entire paper that shows the whole thing. Kind of like the abstract mm-hmm. is in the front of the study, mm-hmm. not in the back. You know, yeah. um, it, it's communicating and the whole addiction to certainty, that type of thing. Th- these things really. Uh, I would say they create the the difference between people. Um, what, what I was going to like, you know, bring up is, you know, with something like, say, vaccination. Um, I like to say I haven't held a vaccination since I became a medical professional. I haven't studied it. I didn't use the methods that I know how to test for biocompatibility for any client ever. So I can say I just don't know. I look at things in these 20 plus years that I've been professionally looking at vaccinations okay like 18 years plus the years that i studied as a hobby before that before i got into the field and all i can say is that i would you know like you know i added up in this like heavily weighted into one conclusion rather than like another conclusion but in reality i just don't know So if I was going to throw it back, I'd be like, okay, so do you have a firm and solid, strong conclusion that's unmovable about such a subject like vaccination? Do you have some degree of flexibility? Is there anything that would, would you like, are you, are you, are you able to audit your conclusions? Do you have the flexibility and humility to do so? Do you, are you even curious to look at any evidence before or since you began this, the field of study? Mm. When I ask people, I, I find that, um, you know, you can have the three F's happen fight, flight, or freeze, you know, because they people do intend to build their self-esteem from my experience upon being correct mm-hmm. instead of finding out what is correct. You know, like that's where I'm at. You know, I want to find out what is. If I find out that I was wrong on any particular conclusion, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I can feel the emotion reciprocal, but at the same time... I'm really really fascinated by the subject. So um that's what I wanted to to offer here right now.
2: Right. Is, so you are you saying you're fascinated by just the subject of what is true like epistemology or vaccines in particular or both?
0: Oh, absolutely, both. But okay, I mean yeah. <laughs> in in practical reality, I find that many people are very firm
2: on their conclusion
0: with that one. You you know what I'm saying, Stephanie? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And not flexible, so and, and not curious, and certainly possessing minimal humility, I would say, because again, there's yeah. a strong desire to be certain about their conclusion. And the cool thing about it is whether some subject like vaccination is academic, say for the three of us who don't have a small baby that we're going to about to choose to vaccinate or not,
2: mm-hmm.
0: or people who do have a baby on the way or have a child. And which it's now not academic. Now it's in the matter of the practical so when it's in the realm of the practical now now the stakes are higher because now it's decision making time and how do you go about doing that and so so that's why I wanted to put out there um, how would you make your decision on on vaccination so should you suddenly find yourself uh, holding a baby that you are gonna keep
2: <laughs> well that's a <laughs> that's a great question Daryl um actually as you were talking about that I was thinking of something that actually did happen that's relevant to this um, When I was at the institution where I was doing my PhD in medical school, um, they institute a, they instituted a policy that anyone who works in the building of where the hospital is located has to get a flu vaccine in the winter. And that was a new thing. They didn't always have that. They would like very strongly encourage people to get flu vaccines with like these. Stickers that they would wear, like, I got my flu shot. It's almost like I paid my taxes or I voted. You know, they put these (laughs) stickers on their shirts and then they would have these, these tables that you would have to walk by every time going into work. Did you get your flu shot yet? And it, so it wasn't mandatory, but it was strongly encouraged, right? And then people, of course, would give you maybe dirty looks if you didn't get it, or they would think they would act like you were weird. But when they instituted the policy making it mandatory, um there were a few scientists that I worked with actually who weren't like working with patients, they weren't doctors, they weren't in the, involved in clinical stuff, they were just going to work in the same building and they that the patients were in and they were scientists just going to work in a lab. Um and they had to get the flu vaccines and a few of them didn't want to do it because they had done some research on the flu vaccines and and said, "Look, it's pretty clear that they are ineffective they're not very effective as far as vaccines go especially if it doesn't match you know if what's in the vaccine doesn't match very well with the prevailing strain that's circulating around mm-hmm. it doesn't offer very much protection from from the the virus and some of them also thought you know there's potentially harmful side effects right no treatment is going to be always without side effects you could have a reaction to the vaccine and who knows if it it's dosing you with um formaldehyde mercury preservatives that are in the multi-dose vials that people are um are wary of and concerned about. And um, you know, a lot of people said if I get the flu, I'm not gonna die, right? I'm a healthy adult with a normal immune system. I might be out of work for a week or two and my employer won't like that, but <laughs> I'm not gonna die. You know, it's not like I'm um really vulnerable to it even though some, some people in the population could be, but I'm not those people. So they didn't want to do it. And they were kind of, I don't know, fighting. Some of them found like sort of technicalities around it. They said they're allergic to eggs and they can't get the vaccine because it has eggs in it. But it was really interesting because there were actually quite a few scientists who gave pushback on that policy that was just a blanket policy. But I didn't know any um, medical students or doctors who did. And they were oh. all just—they <laughs> are all just happy to get it. I personally, um, I approach vaccines kind of on a one-on, like on a per-vaccine basis. Like it's—it's it's almost not fair to lump them all together. Um, I did receive vaccines when I was a child. There weren't as many when I was a child as there are nowadays. Um, but I received some, and I still. Um, you know, I didn't. Uh, I didn't suffer the adverse neurological effects that some people think are associated with vaccines. Um, I have chosen, like every time I've had an opportunity to get a vaccine in my adulthood, I have chosen pretty much not to. <laughs> I did. I did not get the flu vaccine. I've never gotten one. I did not get the HPV vaccine uh, because I read about that and I was concerned about the the incidence of. Um, Concerned about the cost, the sort of way that the the company who makes it pushed it through with like a lot of political connections and also the incidence of, uh, of fainting that happens afterwards. There's like a higher rate of people passing out. You have to sit down for 30 sec 30 minutes or you're supposed to after you get it. So I just opted not to. And then I said, well, if I get HPV, it's probably not going to kill me. I get regular screenings. So there's not, you know, it's not a huge concern. It's not life threatening. So. I don't know what I would do if I was faced with a more life-threatening pathogen with a more effective and safer vaccine. Maybe I would maybe I would choose to get the vaccine. I'm not sure, but right now for the ones that are available to me, I have chosen not to get them. And that's not medical advice to you, you know, or anything like that. I'm just saying what I <laughs> what I did cuz you know, it is like an emotionally charged issue. So does that answer your question, Daryl?
0: Oh, yeah. And, and to some degree, it did walk me a little bit through the process of how you go about coming to your conclusions, because Mm -hmm. in the end of it all, that's what I see becomes the analysis paralysis of many people Mm -hmm. where they see this internet, this library of Alexandria of information, and they wonder, I want, like, how could I, this average Joe or average Jill, possibly sift through that with probably no skills of research and discerning critical thinking and come to a conclusion that I could trust, I think I'm going to find someone that I'm going to need to find someone that I actually do trust and sort of, you know, kind of piggyback onto them and let Mm -hmm. them do the work for me because I, I, I'm afraid, you know, but you know, luckily with more and more people, especially younger folks like both of you guys. Um, I see courage. I see great, awesome, powerful courage in the younger folks. I see huge, huge cowardice in the people my age and older. And like from from the days of you know when we had to hear the internet screechy sound and that kind of thing, and that's in my memory. You know, <laughs> the dial um, up, yeah, <laughs> yeah, dial up that kind of thing. You know, it's like that's that's very in my mind. But I go back like to when I was trying to research when I wrote my first paper on AIDS when I was sixteen. Uh, I went to the New York Times and I thought I was doing research and I was pretty much using verbatim what I was finding right there. I had no idea who owns what I had no idea of the history of AZt that I was like you know writing a nice fancy you know uh, promoting article for 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 just my teacher to read mostly um, just to demonstrate that I knew how to write an article. I mm-hmm. had no idea of the PR machine going on that my perception management was complete at that point, that I, my my critical thinking was diminished and I was being managed, my perceptions were being managed, that public relations is powerful, and now I know a bit better. I have just access to more, and I did swing really hard the other way for a long time, you guys. I mean, I was very, like, against, against, and, and now I'm, like, in the more, like, I just don't know, but I suspect, and I'm probably going to bet, that when it comes to something that has such a powerful push where there's a specialized court system to deal with vaccine injury that makes it rather challenging for anyone to collect and laws on the books to make it so that the makers of vaccines are almost completely immune, kind of like what I described for medical practitioners in Hawaii, uh, I tend to lean in towards like caution, which would say, no mm. thanks, that sounds dangerous to me. And until yeah, I get you can more, see the you know,
2: incentives are not really in favor of protecting you, right? <laughs> I can see that, too.
0: The incentives are for making money and yeah. controlling perception, which is making money.
1: Yeah, and, and and I'll be honest. I mean, yeah, probably back, uh, I, I don't know, like 18 through 19. And this was obviously it, there was there was some emotion here because I, I, I at that time, I probably around that time I had that seizure and I was really pissed off. Uh, that I, I did everything they told me to, and I was still I still had terrible health. So I was just at that point I was it was 100% against anything pharmaceutical. I was 100% against vaccines, and I, I I would I was one of those people that would repost memes and like all this like the disinformation. So some of the disinformation about vaccines, uh, especially the the thimerosal, which is actually removed from all vaccines now. I think that the mercury. Um, but uh, I was I was really really against it, and then uh, and and I would try to like, I don't know I'd give. I'd give advice to people, hey, go go like you know, check out go, go research this and I'd recommend you don't vaccinate your children, which is like that's not for me to do. It was not my place at all. But 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 at at some point I guess when I matured and I I started thinking more critically, I uh, I, I said, you know, I'm not gonna do it myself. Uh, but that is a personal decision that everyone has to make for for themselves or for their children. That's 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 not for me to make, and the only the only person I have control over is myself. Uh, so I, I kind of went and I guess it sounds pretty similar to 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 uh, um, what you went through, Dilbert. But I want to share that it was kind of a funny story. Uh, I don't remember what vaccine it was, but uh, I, I was mandated when I went to Illinois to, to the university that I'm at now. Uh, they they mandated you get two different vaccines, and I
2: meningitis I had, probably was one. I, I,
1: I, I think that was, yeah, that that's, that sounds right. But it was it was two very similar ones. Uh, I guess that the acronyms were, were pretty similar. And uh, I had one of them on my, on my medical record, but the other one I didn't. And I was like, I don't want to get a vaccine. I, I, I don't want to. But I was like, do you guys have religious exemptions? And she is like, uh, she's like, yep, we do, we do. Uh, but if, if there is an outbreak, which means if like one person gets it, whatever the ridiculous number is for them to be able to call it an outbreak or an epidemic, uh, the, the really, really small number, uh, you have to leave campus. Uh, and I was like, okay, I'll well, I'll do it. I'll do it. So I, 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 signed a religious exemption for one of those vaccines as, as an atheist, which was, it was, it's just a funny story. I, I enjoy telling it, but,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, <laughs> but, uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I had, I had that kind of that change in critical thinking uh, as far as, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I really don't know. And I, I don't have a whole lot of time. To- I can't devote my time to finding a, finding a certain answer. Uh, I'm going to avoid them myself, but if other people choose to get them, that's that's their decision. That's kind of kind of what I came to.
2: Yeah, you know, it's funny. Like, there is this sort of idea in culture of like, well, if it tastes horrible, then it must be good for you and healthy. Or like, if it if it makes you feel sick, like a vaccine, that just means it's working. Right? And yeah. I think people are naturally kind of inclined to avoid things that they know are going to make them sick. And so if they if they have a vaccine and they don't feel well afterwards, they're like, and it hurts to get the injection, it's scary. And they're like, well, why would I want to do that again? You know, <laughs> it's hard to see the benefits of it, especially when um it's not a guarantee that you're going to get the immunity or whatever. Um, it, there is a better chance than not, right, than if you didn't get the vaccine. But how scary is that pathogen that it's protecting you from and blah, blah, blah. How much of a threat is it to you? So I just think it's amazing because often they can't give away vaccines. Like you you can go to a Walgreens or a CVS during this time of year and you'll see signs that say free flu shots for everybody. I don't know who sponsors that, but... You know, yeah. often they have a hard time giving them away for free. And so then there's people that come in and say, well, that just means we need to force people to get these vaccines. If they won't take them voluntarily for free, then we're going to have to force them to, to take them. And yeah. that's where I draw the line at every time at force. You know, <laughs> I'm just not comfortable with that. Yeah,
1: I even
2: if you want someone to put something in their body, like convince them. Like,
1: yes, you know, yes.
2: You know, it's easier to force them, right? Like I said before, you know, it's, oh, we don't, we don't want to be bothered to explain this every time. Just anyone who has a little question, they should be able to just trust us. I think people, proponents of vaccines feel that way too. It's like, oh, we don't have time to like convince people and sell them on these vaccines. We'll just force them to get them. But. That's a really dangerous slippery slope because pretty soon you could be forcing people to get something that later turns out to have hurt them. Right. Look at the swine yeah. flu vaccine in the 1970s. People died from that. I mean, my parents had friends that died from that vaccine Crazy. and it wasn't tested very well. It was just it was just put up, put out. So, um <laughs> yeah, you have to be really careful when you start asking people or when you start forcing people to do stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah I I, too, exactly. Um, Exactly. Oh, and we, and we, do, we do have uh, a couple of minutes. I think uh, I want to get your, your guys' concluding thoughts that you'd like to leave the listeners with. Um, but uh, I'll, I'll, this is the last thing I'll say and then we'll, we'll get to that. But I, I used to be in a lot of those like anti-vaccine groups and a lot of them are right are, are status. I mean, they're, they're single issue people and whatever presidential candidate says something about vaccines, they're essentially just going to go for it. Uh, but, uh, yeah, their major issue is vaccines. And one of the things that was going through California at one time in the recent, in, in recent history was, uh, I guess that there was a vote on like mandatory vaccines for people to go to public schools. And, uh, uh I mean, if, if they're so against, so against those, uh, the, the, the easiest solution, uh, rather than, you know, all the lobbying and, and going and voting and all of that, all the nonsense that comes, comes with that, uh, homeschool your children. Uh, and in most states, I, I don't know for every single one of them, uh, you you aren't forced to to vaccinate your children if you homeschool them. Uh, so I mean, that's that. That's, I just wanted to toss that in there. But uh, uh, I guess uh, uh, Stephanie, i will start with you. Could, uh, but what do you want to leave the listeners with uh, with, with what we've discussed tonight?
2: Oh my God! <laughs> well, um, I want to leave with a story of ye old butt plugs, and I'll explain what I mean by that. <laughs> There was an article going around the internet this week. um, And it was about a a cure that was circulating around back in the days, like before the FDA was developed in the US. It was like kind of like anything goes. Like the market for treatments and cures was pretty unregulated. And people just made tinctures that often contain stuff like opium and, you know, other stuff that alcohol, things that make you feel good. And it was for like nonspecific ailments. It's just, oh, it's a tonic, it will cure anything. And in, the, in those days, around the same time, there was a, a treatment that got sold. It was called um, Young's Ideal Rectal Dilators. and it was a set of butt plugs. and they claimed that they cured headaches, that they made people they cured constipation, they made people more regular, and that it was very important to start with the small one and then kind of move it in and out a little bit and then go up to the larger one. That's very important. And if you leave it in for 10 minutes, it's good. But 30 minutes is even better. The benefits cannot be ignored. And the the ads for these were hilarious. And it it just shows that not too long ago, people thought that butt plugs were a magic cure-all. And this was like the this was almost like the male version of uh, of hysteria treatments for women, which there's you know some good movies about the history of that. Women were diagnosed with hysteria, and the treatment was getting you know basically a, a hand job, oh, or a hysterectomy. Yeah, a hand job if you were lucky from a doctor, oh, yeah. but a hysterectomy if you were unlucky, because they thought that the crazy came from your uterus. So, um, <laughs> pick your poison. So I'm I'm just saying. People can be wrong in medicine, and they're often wrong. (laughs) Just a few years ago, people thought eggs gave you heart attacks, and now they've quietly reversed their position on that. And of course, they thought butt plugs cured headaches. So humility, like Daryl has been saying this whole show, humility is the ticket and realizing that we can be wrong, and it's okay to say, I don't know.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's what I I I want to leave the listeners with. (laughs) Very good. Very good. And uh, Daryl, your closing thoughts for the listeners.
0: Sure. And I thank you so much for all that, Stephanie. It was beautiful. I can't top that one very easily, except for I'm very happy that you, Stephanie, I'm very happy that you showed up for your court appointed acupuncture treatment, you know, like this, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, I'm glad that I don't work per force like that. I'm glad that everyone comes to me voluntarily and I, I only exist in that way. And I want to just encourage the listeners out there that whatever state of mind you're in and whatever age you're at, you have the capacity to learn critical thinking skills, you have the ability to go through and learn every single logical fallacy, you have the ability to actually define your terms, go through and understand the connections between the terms, which is called logic, flag things like logical fallacies as they come up, not as an absolute that it's not true, but as a possibility that it could be leading you, misleading you down the wrong way. And then from there, look for practical applications out there. Look for how things are practically achieved in whatever it is that you're trying to do, that it is being done. People are researching and finding ways to do things and that it, there's a lot going on within the realm of the clinical behind the scenes. That's what I own to, to leave people with like, that there's hope and that the time to research subjects is before you have a crisis. Mm-hmm. And while Good you're point. in crisis, Perhaps look for someone to do the research who's not in that crisis, or I guess just develop greater critical thinking and research skills and and find ways to balance your own emotional terrain so that you could really be level-headed no matter how crazy the situation is. That's what I want to leave people with.
1: Very good very good and I guess but my my one, my one uh, closing thought on this and this is something that I don't remember her name she touched on it in the Astroturf and the manipulation of media messages um, but uh, obviously questioning authority and questioning things is, is very 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 good uh, and, and I know when I, when I've done my own my own research on, on certain medical subjects uh, I, I, I got frustrated I didn't know what conclusion I was supposed to come to and I, I had no clue and yeah I, I, I got frustrated and I, I, I can see that I, I could see that leading into like well you know uh, you know I just can't know anything. Uh, I just I just can't know anything, and 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 that's just that's just how it is. Uh, I would I would recommend that people don't come to that conclusion, that that nihilistic point of view. Uh, with All this information is at our fingertips, and uh, obviously, as as Daryl was was kind of saying, I mean, just develop your critical thinking skills and uh, and, and 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 your research skills. Uh, because uh, I mean, yeah, there, there is truth out there. There is truth out there. Just uh, it's, it's just all. It's just sometimes really, really hard to find. So, uh, Daryl and Stephanie, thank you so much uh, for for coming on tonight. It was uh, a terrific discussion. I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. And, uh, and who knows? Maybe maybe we'll have a part three of the scientific en- scientific consensus series sometime. I don't know. Uh, but uh, thank but we'll you, Shane.
2: This this was an awesome show. I really had fun. Thank you so much, Daryl too. This was like really fun to finally do a show with you. And um, I'm gonna I'm gonna listen back. To this tomorrow and uh, have a lot of laughs and a lot of thinking, and this is really, really fun.
0: Oh, right on. So much. Thank you guys. Uh, Finally, did a show with you, Stephanie. Mm -hmm. And you guys. High five, uh, bro.
2: We did it. Yeah.